Well, good morning. It is so good to see all of you here today and those of you online as well. It is great to be back with you all today. I love Rock Hills. This is a special place where God can meet us right where we're at. So it's an honor to have you all here with us today. I'm going to be Captain Obvious here for just a moment, and I'm going to give you some breaking news that you are all absolutely aware of. We live in a culture that is harshly divided, where we've got different viewpoints and the other side has got it absolutely wrong. We live in a culture where people are easily outraged. Am I right? I mean, it could be just the littlest of things, but it can absolutely set people off. I know. (laughs) I already made somebody mad. We live in a culture where anxiety is probably at an all-time high. And if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, just go home, flip on one news channel, and then flip to the other news channel, and you'll, you'll see really quick what I'm talking about. But even in the midst of that, there's still a lot of really great people, right? I mean, the people that are sitting next to you today qualify as some of those people, right? Uh, there's a lot of really good programs and organizations and nonprofits in our culture that are doing a lot of good. There are churches that are surviving through this last year and hopefully beginning to thrive again in many ways. But in the midst of this, I guess I have this growing feeling that if Christ is within me, there should be something different in my life than what is in the world, even different than just being a good person. There should be something about my life that is unordinary. Now, I'm not saying we should be holier than thou. Hey, I'm a Christian, so I'm better than you. It doesn't make me better than anyone. It doesn't make me elite. But if I am following Christ, there should be something uncommon about my life. But let's be honest, that's not always the case when it comes to us as Christians, right? Sometimes our lives are just as messed up as everybody else's life. We have all the same issues that everybody else does. So what does it look like if we really find and follow Jesus, as we say is part of our purpose here at Rock Hills? How should that make my life any different than if I wasn't following Jesus, if I haven't found him? One of my favorite authors, Bob Goff, who... uh, you read any of his books, uh, he is so inspirational about how you can truly love other people. So if you've ever wondered what does it look like to love other people, just pick up anything that he has written and um, it's really great. One of my, one quote I read from him this week says this, our problem following Jesus is we're trying to be a better version of us rather than a more accurate reflection of him. You see, for us to follow Jesus doesn't mean that we're in this constant cycle of self-improvement. We're not trying to be a better version of us. We need to decrease so that He can increase to where we are reflecting Him. Our primary text for this series, we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit, which is found in the book of Galatians. So just a little background on the book of Galatians. It's written by Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament. He writes it to the church in 
a community called Galatia. That's why it's called the Galatians. And Paul has such a deep burden for these people. Now remember, this is the first century. So people who are following Christ, people who are a part of the church, they aren't a part of the church because their parents and grandparents went to church, because they grew up going to church, because it was a socially acceptable thing for them to do. This costs them a lot. For somebody to say, I am a believer in Christ, a believer in the way, and I would gather together with other believers was putting your reputation on the line, was putting your, your, your access to social relationships, to opportunities on the line. And so it was a big deal to follow Christ and to be a part of the church. And everybody's figuring out how to do it. Much like this last year, churches all over the world are trying to figure out how do we do church now that the rules have changed, now that we have to do things different. And we all scrambled. But it was that times a million for the first century church because they're just figuring out how to do church. And Paul has a deep burden for these people. As a matter of fact, he describes it in Galatians 4.19, comparing it... He longs for Christ to be formed within them like the pains of childbirth. And don't ask me how Paul knows what the pains of childbirth are like, but that's how deeply Paul says he wants Christ to be formed within them. The goal is not to get as many people in the church building as possible, as many members on the roster as possible. The goal for Paul is, I want Christ to be formed within you. And that is Paul's longing as he prays for the church in Galatia. He understands, as he will explain in the book of Galatians, Christ formed within us happens because of the Holy Spirit within us. When Jesus was crucified and then he rose again and ascends into heaven, then the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts gives all of us the same access to God the Father that Jesus himself had. In Romans, it tells us that the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now alive within you through the Spirit. So Paul plants this church in Galatia. He gathers this group of people that want to follow Jesus, and he gets this church started. And there's leaders within the church. Paul then goes on to the next community and starts another church there, and so on and so on, all throughout the New Testament. But as Paul goes on to the next church, other leaders begin to lead the church in Galatia. And the problem is the leaders in the church in Galatia, they're saying, yes, we need to follow Christ. But also, don't forget, don't forget how important all of the Jewish rituals are and how important all of the rules and the laws of the Jewish customs are. So yes, follow Christ and also do all of these Jewish rituals. And so a division arises within the church. People become offended. One group says, well, how can you say that? The other group says, well, how can you not say that? And they have differing points of view. One side saying, you need to observe the Jewish law. The other side saying, no, Jesus came to set us free from the law. So we don't have to observe those rules anymore. Not much has changed. Even within religious circles today, within the church, you can have Christians who move more to a legalistic side that says 
if you're really a Christian, here are the things that you have to do. And if you're really a Christian, you would absolutely not do these things in your life. Because how could you be a Christian if you're not doing these things or if you are doing these things? And then there's people on the other side of the spectrum that say, I believe in Jesus and I'm free. I don't have to live by any of those disciplines in my life. Discipline and discipleship coming from the same root. I don't have to have any of that discipleship in my life. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to go to church. I don't, I don't need to spend time in prayer. I'm free. I don't have to do any of those things. And the pendulum swings back and forth between the religious enforcers and the rule rejectors. And even today, as it was then, society can be divided. Whether we're talking about the church, where we could look at two different perspectives and say, this is right, no, this is right. Or we could be talking about the society where we live in, where we could say, no, the left wing of politics is right. No, the right wing of politics is right. That's why it's called right. I mean, we could go back and forth all day long. There's a polarity there. And unfortunately, it is reflected within the church, within believers all over the world. And the world then looks at the church and says, you know what? You're just as divided as we are. Why would I want to be a part of that? And the church begins to lose its appeal. It's not worth following. There's nothing different about it. There's nothing unordinary about it. The church looks just like the world in so many ways. But Paul, as he's going to tell us in the book of Galatians, he's saying this is about a lot more than just a division that you're having in the church of Galatia. This is bigger than a disagreement within the church it's much weightier than different viewpoints within our culture or society. Paul would say, this is about what is happening within you. Even within you, there is a polarity that says this way or this way. This is how he describes it uh, in verse 16. So I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So he's saying there's two sides here. If you choose to walk in the Spirit, you will not choose to gratify the desires of your flesh. Your flesh not meaning your physical flesh, but your sinful nature. He goes on to say, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. He's saying it's one or the other. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul is saying there is this divide within the church. There's a divide within our society. But even more importantly, there is a divide within every one of us. There is your sinful nature and there is the Spirit of God that He wants to overflow out of every one of our lives. And if we are followers of Christ, the Spirit of God is within us, which means 
there should be something unordinary about our lives because if we walk in the Spirit, we do not fulfill and gratify the flesh. This battle will determine how you experience God. It can just be a head thing, right? You can come and listen to somebody talk about God all day long, but never let it change your life if we are just in the flesh. It will determine how you see others and how you treat others, how we reflect God in our lives. The reason I wanted to do this series now is because I think now, maybe more than ever, I think that the world needs to see a true reflection of God. I think that our city, our community, our neighborhoods, your family needs to see what God really looks like. And he wants to do that through our lives. So this series, The Art of Being Unordinary, we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, an uncommon lifestyle that will reflect God to the world. This is how Paul describes it, Galatians 5, 22, and the beginning of 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So each week we're going to look at one of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit And I hope that uh, maybe through this series you will memorize that verse. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's saying the Holy Spirit produces this. In other words, as you follow Christ, the Holy Spirit fills you. You cannot produce the fruit yourself. God produces the fruit as a byproduct of you simply seeking after God. As we spend time with Him, as we are connected to Him, as our roots grow deeper, the byproduct of our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, reflecting God's character. And that is what the world needs to see. Now, you know that fruit doesn't just instantly grow. It takes time. And so it's not just a matter of saying, okay, on Sunday I went to church. I want to see this fruit in my life. But it's a matter of day after day after day. We connect to God. And as we connect to Him, the byproduct is these things begin to be produced in our lives. For many of us as Christians, we may look at our lives and realize we're void of some of those characteristics in our life. But hopefully, as we continue to connect to Him, they will grow stronger and stronger. Unfortunately, as people look at Christians, many times people think of people that are hypocritical, hateful, judgmental, and in many ways we bring this on ourselves Because we lose sight of what God truly wants to do within us. God wants to form His character within you, as Paul said. He wants to form His character within us. 
The end game for our faith is not so that you can be right about everything, so that you can have all the answers, so that you can be effective or successful. The end game is that the character of Christ is formed within us. You see, we can be right in our views and our doctrines and what we teach here on Sunday mornings. We could appear successful in many ways. But if we're not growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, then we're not becoming who God wants us to be. So we're going to break down these fruit over the next several weeks. And they're not different fruit. It's, all, it's the fruit singular of the Spirit. So as we grow in Christ, all of these characteristics are to grow within us. But we're going to look this week at the first one, the one that Paul puts at the top of his list, and that is love. As believers, if we're following Christ, we should be growing in our reflection of Him, in the Word, and in the way, which means we should be loving the things that Jesus loves. Some of the things that we see through Scripture that Jesus loves, He loves the broken. He loves the poor. He loves the orphan. He loves the widow. He loves those who are lost, and he loves those who are following him. And Jesus makes it clear, he loves the church. And if we're following him, we cannot separate ourselves from loving in that way. We have to grow in that love. But let's be honest. Love is, it's a big, happy, fun, fluffy word, right? I mean, love can mean so many things. Uh, last week, I had the privilege of officiating uh, my daughter's wedding, my oldest daughter. I think we have a picture here, and uh, I may look a little unhappy there, but man, I was just trying to hold it, hold it in as I walked her down the aisle. But I got to walk her down the aisle, and um, another pastor the uh, who gives this woman to be married to this man, and then we switched, and uh, I did the ceremony. But um, it, it was a beautiful ceremony, and there was lots of love there. Love for her as my daughter, love for her and her new husband, my new son-in-law. I'm still getting used to saying that. But when we think of love, I mean, that's, that's part of what we think of, right? Uh, and I'm sure everybody else is thinking the same thing I am. When you think of love, you probably think of chocolate chip cookies, Right? <laughs> I love homemade chocolate chip cookies, but please don't take that as an invitation to make me homemade chocolate chip cookies because I love them too much. I cannot control myself. So Mike Smith, do not make me any of those cookies that you made me one day because they were unbelievable. We use love in so many ways, right? I mean, there are just things that we love, but Paul gives us a very distinct description of what love is in a very famous passage in another church that he wrote to, the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, many people know this as the love chapter, but he digs deeper into love. And this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor 
and give my body over to the hardship that I may boast. But I do not have love. I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. What a description of what love is there. Now, believe it or not, this was not early in Paul's career when he was writing for Hallmark and he thought this will make a great card. So he put that down on paper. He didn't write this for a ceremony, a wedding ceremony that they were going to have in Corinth. He didn't write this to a group of spouses to say, hey, here's how you need to be a good spouse. It's much more radical than that. Paul is writing this to the Christians in the city of Corinth, which is an ancient city in Greece. He's describing to them what it looks like to follow after Christ with your life, to live a life filled with the Spirit of God. Christianity, again, in this context, it's in the first century. They're just figuring this out, but they're already getting off track. So Paul is going to contrast as he does in both of these books, what it looks like to follow God, what it looks like to love, and also what it doesn't look like to love, what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, and what it doesn't look like to be filled with the Spirit. So several things that we can pick up in this chapter of love here. First of all, in those first few, uh, first few verses, I would note this. A gifted life is not the equivalent of a supernaturally Filled life. He begins by saying, Hey, you can talk in the tongues of men. You could also talk in the language of angels. You can fathom the mysteries of God and be able to explain that to people. You could even have faith that was so big you could move mountains. Now, that is a whole lot of gifted faith, right? To be able to do those sorts of things. And he's saying, You can have these gifts in your life, but it doesn't mean that you love people. You see, the church in Corinth is filled with really gifted people. Corinth itself was a spectacular place. It's right on the coast. It's a port city. It's a happening city. It's where all the, the fun stuff is happening. It's geographically situated on a peninsula. It's a shipping center, a tourism center, a financial center, cultural center, Gifted people from all over the area are flocking to Corinth. And as they come there in this particular time in the first century, they are prospering. Corinth is prospering at a fast pace. So the church is also filled with very talented, very charismatic, very smart, gifted people. And we see that the church also is growing rapidly. And Paul gives us this description. It's possible to have a church that is filled with amazing people, such as yourselves. It's possible to have a church that is filled with extremely gifted and talented people, such as yourselves, who can do amazing things. Now, we're not just talking about 
being an amazing drummer like Marcus back here. We're talking about, he's saying, people that can understand the mysteries of God, people who can move mountains. Incredibly gifted people can fill your church here on Sundays. We could have incredible teaching. We could have incredible worship. We could have incredible groups, all of that, and we could still do all of those things without love. And Paul is saying, if you don't have love, you're missing the entire point. He goes on in 4 through 7 to say things like, love is patient, kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't rejoice when somebody else fails. He's giving us a list of everything that the Corinthian culture was. They were in a hurry, they were rude, they were arrogant, they were divisive. They were starting fights. They rejoiced when somebody else failed. Culturally speaking, right now, that's the world we live in, right? I mean, again, if we go back to the news, if one side fails, the other side rejoices. And our country, our culture is split right down the middle. However your leaning may be, Sometimes we can think, well, it doesn't matter if I'm rude, if I'm obstinate, if I'm boastful, if I'm arrogant, if I rejoice in somebody else's failure. It's part of the culture that we live in. Unfortunately, it's also part of the church. Maybe not even in one singular church, but from one church to another. This very same mindset exists and Paul paints us a scary picture about being a follower of Christ, about being the church. I can be a really successful Christian. We could be a really successful church. And we could still not be following Jesus at all. We could be very talented. We could have all the bells and whistles that impress people and not be following Jesus. Paul seems to be echoing Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name do many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. What? You can be successful. You can do amazing things. Even in the name of God, we could have a growing, thriving church, have many gifts, many programs, many opportunities. But if we miss the point and we don't know Jesus, if we don't love is that possible? Paul is saying that's exactly what is possible. We can be guilty of this all the time. When we base who we follow upon their talent, their charisma, their gifting, we do this in politics, we do this in the church. Just because someone is gifted doesn't mean we should follow them. Jesus said just a few verses before this, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Watch out for false prophets 
They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Then watch what he says. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Which most of us don't know what grapes or figs come from, but the answer is no. (laughs) By your fruit you will recognize them. So even though we don't understand the agricultural reference there, we understand you recognize somebody by their fruit. The second thing that this points out to us in this love chapter is that a moral life is not the equivalent of a supernaturally changed life. You can be a moral person, the most moral person, all day long, but it doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is living within us and directing our lives. In verse 3, Paul said, you can give all that you have to the poor. You can sacrifice yourself, but if you don't love, it's all been for nothing. And we see this all the time in social justice around us, right? People can do great things. These things have nothing to do with talent. These things just have to do with being kind, with virtues, with morality. It could be a full-on commitment to helping others to the point where you yourself live in poverty. Going so far as being willing to die to help others. But Paul says you can do all of this You can be really committed to what you believe and sacrificial in the way that you help others. And you can still be a real jerk. Not loving people at all. Not looking like Jesus at all. Now, what would motivate somebody, though? You have to ask yourself to be so sacrificial, so selfless in their giving to others If it's not love, I mean, it seems like that would be love, right? Well, the clue is in verse 1. If I do not have love, I am a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. So what's the issue here? Because I don't know about you guys, but I love a good drum solo. And uh, it's a good thing I don't see Marcus right now because I'd probably invite him up here to crank one out. I mean, you know, when the drums just hit just right. And that's kind of what Paul is describing here. But in this cultural context, Corinth was full of pagan temples with pagan gods where people would go to worship these pagan gods. And the way that they would proceed to the temple was with a parade. And people would grab all of their instruments, pots and pans, cymbals, whatever they could. And on their way to the pagan temple, they would make as much noise, create as big of a scene as possible. Bang, 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 crash, 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 crash. All this to say, look at us, pagan God. Give us your favor. And the louder They were the more attention they attracted. They thought the more attention they would attract from the pagan God. And we can do the same thing. If our sacrifice for others is done with the wrong motive, the telltale sign is if you are short on love, you can be sacrificial and still be full of arrogance, still be full of rudeness. If we're short on love, 
We're doing it with the wrong motivation. A supernaturally filled life will lead us to relational transformation. It says love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It doesn't dishonor others and so on and so on. You see, all of that is a description of relationships. You see, to follow God is not just some blissful state where you feel peaceful. All right, I'm, I'm at peace with God. Me and the big guy upstairs, we're good. Because when that's the case, it's still focused on me. Paul is trying to say following Christ is evident in the way we treat others. Corinth, this first century church, in so many ways is like a typical church today. People don't get along. People have judgmental thoughts about others. People gossip. All the reasons that you understand, that turns people off to church. Maybe you have left church because of those things. You know people, certainly, who have left church because of those things. So it brings me to the question, why does sometimes having religion seem to make it worse, right? People go to church and then they're more judgmental. They're more arrogant. They're more fearful. They're more self-righteous. Because when we're just talking about religion, religion tells you that you are made right by the way that you behave. It makes us fearful and prideful. We have a fear of getting caught or being shamed. Or we have a prideful sense when look at how good I am doing. We see this evident in the Pharisees and their message. But the gospel itself has nothing to do with fear and shame and pride. The message that Jesus came to give us is completely based in grace. That upon the cross, Jesus has done the work, paid the price, made the sacrifice, so that you could have a relationship with God. And if it's all about a relationship with God, more specifically, that relational transformation means that a supernaturally changed life is about meeting love as a person. Now, what do I mean by that? We learn to love by being loved. We know this from countless studies that if children, infants, newborns, we see this all the time with orphans, if they, in those first few months, go a period of time without being held, without somebody looking into their eyes and talking to them, even though they can't talk back, it will forever stunt their development. We learn to love by being loved. And so in order for us to be filled with that fruit of the Spirit love, we first have to know the love that Jesus pours out for us. Listen to what Paul said again. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud or prideful. I can just imagine Paul writing these words and remembering the sacrifice that Christ made as he hung on the cross, as he was 
tortured, as he was whipped, as he was mocked. Love is patient. Love is kind. Not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. As he hung on the cross between two thieves, it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Paul describes love with the characteristics of a person. Jesus is love personified in our lives. He did all of that for us. He did all of that for you specifically. You are loved extravagantly by the creator of the universe. So that means you don't have to do a drum solo to come to God, to say, look at me. Look at how selfless I am. Look at how good I am. Or God, look at how bad I am. We can simply come to his presence. There is nothing that I can do to make him love me more. There's nothing that I can do to make him love me less. For those of you who struggle with loving yourself, I want you to hear that again today. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you less. The world is starving for something real. The fruit overflowing out of our lives. The more I know the one who personifies love, the more love will be personified in me. Would you pray with me? God, may your fruit be the byproduct in our lives of us following you. Lord, may the world see that you are alive within us. Lord, I pray that this week that you would help us to love others authentically and love them well because we are genuinely loved by you. Maybe you're here today and you need to begin that relationship with Christ, understanding that you are loved by him. You can pray a simple prayer, something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to take my place. Lord, forgive me and make me a new creation. God, help me to love the way that you love. Help me to love the things that you love and the people that you love. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Thank you so much for joining us today in person and those of you online as well. We look forward to seeing you all next week. All the other events that you can connect to upcoming and during the week, you can find those at rockhills.com. God bless you.